Welcome to the Politics of Special Forces podcast. In this 10-part limited series, join me, Kevin D. Stringer, and me, Christian Breed, as we examine just what Special Operations Forces, or SAW, does, and how that might need to change as we move into this new era of great power competition. Happy New Year. We are joined today by Dr. David Ellis. Dave is a resident senior fellow at the Joint Special Operations University, or JSAO, in Florida, and he holds a doctorate in International Relations and Comparative Politics from the University of Florida. He served as an intelligence analyst in the United States Special Operations Command Intelligence, or J2, deployed to Afghanistan in support of Special Operations Forces from 2010 to 2011, and joined JSAO in 2016. His current research focuses on the intersection of complexity, organizational learning within the special operations community, and integrated campaigning. I first came across Dave's work at a working group I took part in in September of 2021 on special operations and their role in narrative warfare. I found the experience to be fascinating and rewarding. Narrative, or the stories and experiences that were used to drive and describe being to behaviors, was a topic I had not considered to be part of the Special Operations Forces toolset. Shortly after that working group, I pitched the idea of an episode on this topic to Kevin, and we agreed. Dave needs to come on the show. Dave was gracious enough to oblige, and the results of our conversation just scratched the surface of this expansive and inherently multidisciplinary topic. It was a thought-provoking chat, and we're thrilled to share it with you today. Here's our conversation with Dr. David Ellis. All right, so we're joined today with uh, by Dave Ellis uh, from uh, the Joint Special Operations University uh, down in Florida, and uh, we're also uh, joined by my, my our co-host, uh, Colonel Kevin Stringer. Um, and so, Dave, talk to us about uh, what we mean by narrative. Well, uh, narrative has uh, a couple of different definitions, uh, depending on which discipline that you look at it from. Uh, but we worked as a group uh, a couple of weeks ago to come up with one that is relevant to our community and special operation. What we distilled down is a narrative is a collection of ideas, concepts, or you can call them stories that codify or attach meaning to events and behavior. So it's this idea that there are things going on in the world around us, and then how do we interpret those things based on our, um, our, our interpretations of self and our own personal experiences, either individually or as groups. Okay, interesting. So it's 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 stories or concepts um, that have meaning, and then of course will impact behavior. And so when we're talking about behavior, like what exactly do we mean? Are we talking like how a country behaves, how we enact foreign policy? Like is this like statecraft? What are we what are we getting at here? So I uh, a narrative, if it's uh, working really well, should be rooted in one of our identity layers. So every individual has multiple identity layers. So which one do we choose? in any given time, right? And then how do we behave based on what that identity tells you? Uh, one of the examples I give is um, there's this concept, uh, there are these two concepts called the logic of appropriateness versus the logic of rationality. Most people, when they think about what is my identity and what am I supposed to do, they automatically move to this idea of what is rational behavior. What we've learned in organization theory and, and some other uh, disciplines is that the logic of appropriateness precedes the logic of rationality. So an example, um, when I'm on base uh, and it's five o'clock and the Star Spangled Banner plays, everyone is supposed to stop, face the flag, put their hand over their heart, 
and give honor to um, our country. Now, if it's raining or sunshine, it does not matter. You stop and you salute the flag, right? Now, that's unproblematic if I'm just civilian or contractor Dave on base. One day, I had my newborn, three months old, and that scenario basically happened. Now, it wasn't raining, but let's introduce this concept of logic of appropriateness. If I have my, if I'm contractor Dave or civilian Dave and it starts raining on me, I'll just get wet because there really are no consequences to me. It's the right thing to do as that person. The logic of appropriateness is to just get wet, right? It's rational. If I'm the father of a three-month-old with my Cuban wife, right? suddenly I have a complicating identity. Am I a father-husband or am I just the civilian or contractor? Dave? So my response would be, I'm going to get in the car with my daughter so that she does not get sick at the age of three months old, right? So my father identity, my husband identity will take over in that circumstance. So the logic of rationality depends on how we imagine ourselves in a given situation. Now, a good narrative, right, as a story, as a framing concept will help to tell us who we are in that environment. Okay, interesting. So I'm just trying to make that connection to, you know, so these are all individual behaviors, individual identities that we're talking about. And so your argument then is that this gets aggregated to collectives. We self-identify as part of larger collectivities, whether it's a sports team or a, a, a province or a state or um, a country uh, or something that's you no know, parent, right? That's a universal, uh, potentially universal identity layer. So we have what are called primary socializations. Those are things that tell us who we are as a family unit, right? What's my lineage? Uh, we have local communities. We have ethnicity, um, race, gender, religion. All of those things are generally considered primary socializations. They're kind of at us as a root core, but they also provide our immediate tribal identities, however you want to describe them. Then there are what are called secondary socializations. And these are the ones that tend to relate to things we learn over time after we're formed as children. Right? We're children, we go to school, we suddenly get exposed to all these other opportunities in life. I can be a Tampa Bay Buccaneer, I can be a, um, a Star Wars fan, I can be a, um, a certain type of music lover. Right? So I get all of these, I can be an academic. I get all of these secondary socializations then, that then compete for my time on an identity layer. Which identities I choose will largely depend on how I perceive the environment around me. Now, if we go back to the de definition of narrative, it's a collection of ideas and concepts or stories that codify or attach meaning to the events and behaviors around us, right? So a good narrative will help to elevate an identity layer, make it more pertinent than it might otherwise be, and that will then release this logic of rationality that will kind of bound um, my responses. So Dave, I'd like to take it from there. You've provided us what I would characterize as a very good definition or theoretical foundation to narrative. And it seems like it's from a, a sociological or even an anthropological lens. Very much. But we're a series about special operations forces and great power competition. So I'd like to ask you, help us connect 
what you've just said about narrative and this tribal cultural identity question to special operations forces and great power competition? Oh, a fantastic question. Um, so special operations uh, runs a spectrum, right? Uh, some of which can be in a kinetic phase, some of which would be in a non-kinetic phase. A lot of what we have conceptualized over the last 15 to 20 years has been more on the kinetic side of the spectrum. However, when we think about um, the modern environment, if we take the idea of strategic competition, our joint staff has been very clear. If we get to kinetic operations and strategic competition, we fail because the, the threat of escalation in nuclear conflict then becomes an, uh, undesirable at a minimum, right? So how do we compete below the level of armed conflict? Well, this, it, the, the joint concept for integrated campaigning, the, I'm sorry, the joint concept for integrated campaigning issued by the joint staff in 2018 is very clear. It's about influence. It's about the information environment and how do we shape the way people perceive um, what's going on. So it is about influence in the end. So what does that mean? What does influence mean? Well, it's about eliciting behavior based on how we interpret what is in our rational interest, and that depends on how we perceive the environment. So it's hard to imagine doing strategic competition without um, this basic idea of competition and narratives surrounding us. And I can give you a quick example, uh, two quick examples that relate to uh, our main adversary. First, when you think about Russian hybrid warfare or how we codify Russian hybrid warfare, the first, what, five or six steps are basically about perception and creating facts on the ground, mobilizing people based on perception. The military only comes in to solidify whatever the gains are based on those mobilized perceptions. Uh, the CCP, on the other hand, the Belt and Road Initiative is completely built around a narrative of China as a rising benign power whose market will lift all boats across the global south. And it has created what are um, what on the surface appear to be market linkages that will benefit everyone, but in the end, really don't. So that narrative of what it's trying to create. Um, will encourage people, right, this benign rising power, to invest in China, to create stronger trade relations, to create a long-term commodity for uh, investment deal. Until such a time that it's not in China's interest or the CCP's and the Chinese Communist Party's interest to maintain those. Your examples, I think, are, are very relevant when we talk about China and Russia and the great power competition. I'm still seeking for the connection to special operations forces. I'll date myself a bit, okay. but I can recall as a young officer when we had a United States information agency, yep. a non-military uh, foreign ministry level type organization that messaged and conducted influence narratives uh, towards, at that time, the Soviet Union. Um, I, I concur. We've got the adversaries. There, there seem to be competing narratives. What's the connection to special operations forces? So that depends on what a special operation is, right? So if we make soft the the, the center of our um, 
analysis, then we fall back on what we imagine, at least in the United States, is our 12 core activities. Individually, they don't add up to strategic competition. But if you aggregate them as a support to resilience effect, it requires a bunch of the skills that are found in our core activities. It would require civil affairs. It would require uh, military information support operations. It would require some uh, unconventional warfare capabilities. It will require foreign internal defense capabilities. All of those things add up to resilience or support to resistance. Um, I would make the case, and I will make the case later on in our conversation, that the narrative is not a secondary or third line activity. It is the main effect. And so the lines of operation that we engage on the ground make the words reality. And so what a special operation is depends on who our adversary is. We can't say we have these 12 core activities, those are special operations. We have to figure out what is a, an adversary's vulnerability, which is gonna be different for ISIS than Russia, than the Chinese Communist Party, and then figure out what is a special operation that degrades their capability while advantaging us, right? How do we shape the environment? That's a special operation which may or may not be conducted by special operations forces. This is a cognitive change that I think is going to be much more necessary as a conversation as we move forward. Well, before I pass, pass over to Christian um, for a couple of our, our next questions, I mean, I like what you said. Uh, I even took a note on it. It's really, for want of a better word, it's cognitive warfare. There's not a kinetic aspect to it. This is all in the mind and influencing the mind of whatever population. But to understand you correctly, you're actually offering that we need to widen our perspective on what special operations are. And that could actually include a number of civilian organizations, even private organizations, if necessary, if that's going to address the adversary's narrative. Is that kind of a correct yeah, translation? Absolutely. And, and there's a one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Tom Searle at the Joint Special Operations University, uh, issued a uh, JSAL monograph on a theory of special operations. Most of our theories have focused on special operations forces. And so we tend to think of it in terms of elite characteristics of the individuals who are assessed and selected into the force. So the, the emphasis is on what are the characteristics of the people, which is important. But then if we look at what is a special operation, it's a relative matter. And it depends on what we're asking conventional forces to do and then what is required by the operating environment. There's always going to be a gap there. <laughs> and so who fills the gap? Well, that by definition, as a non-conventional activity, will be a special operation. In the past, we've kind of said, well, there are these clear high-end capabilities that we will need uh, that will uh, occur periodically. So we want forces for those specific things. So they were more definable and we could create forces for those specific things. But as we move into the 21st century, I would submit that we're finding the gap between the conventional forces and the environment is going to be more novel, right? Because the context of globalization, the global communications infrastructure, global corporations, all of those things change the operating environment in the 21st century. 
So how we conceive of a special operation also has to be continuously updated and assessed. And that may or may not be something we can create standing forces. So the theory of special operations says it's always a relative matter. We can say the conventional forces can increase their capabilities, such as uh, high-end direct action raids. Many of our conventional forces now have the technology and the skill and the experience to do that. Does that necessarily have to be a special operation anymore? Maybe, maybe not. Or what are the conditions under which it becomes a no-fail or highly sensitive thing for which we want those special forces? Hey, thank you so much for that. That's, that's fascinating. I, I was taking notes like crazy as well. Um, and I love this idea of, 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 it's almost like we're flipping the script in terms of what's important. What is it we're asking of soft? And one of the things I, I'm really, you know, I, I find really interesting about this whole podcast series thus far, and, and Kevin, you can you know, back me up on this, but through all the guests we've had, you included, we're very little discussion on direct action. It's been on all the other things. Right. And direct action is that thing that has to happen, has to be prepared for, for sure. But there is so much more to what we ask of soft and what soft is capable of doing. Again, I go back to, you know, the, our, our framing episode right out, of, right out of the gate where we talked about the, the concept of uh, boundary spanning, uh, uh, autonomy and, um, and specialized generalists from uh, Shamir and Benary's uh, concept. You know, this is what we're talking. This is why this is so important, because they, they, they have that capability. And your distinction between a special operation versus special operation forces, I think, is important and something we're going to revisit uh, in further detail later, I think, which would be really good, too. Um, but, you know, I, I think that connection is, is, is pretty clear. It's really it's really it's, it's, it's thought provoking. You know, it, it's, it's forcing us to kind of almost whiteboard what it is that we, we, we do when we think about special operations forces. So really, this is this is great stuff. Thank you so much. Can I can I add one more? Uh, yeah, sure. More CBEO. All right counter-violent extremist organization example into this mix, because this is where special operations forces are going to continue to find themselves for a while. Um, a narrative will often be rooted in some kind of collective knowledge, uh, collective memory, right? So when we look at what's happening in the Sahel, for example, or what ISIS did in um, the Levant over to um, Iraq, what we see in the Sahel, we're doing a current research project, and one of the animating narratives that uh, jihadi groups in, this, in Burkina Faso, Niger, and Nigeria, along that tri-border area, are using is a reference point of the uh, Emirate of Messina, which was a political entity that existed in um, around the 1830s to, I think, around the 1870s. But it was a Fulani-based emirate that crossed all of those areas. So if we look at what they're trying to do, they're basically saying the current government and state structure does not work for the Fulani. And there is another way to organize that is when we had a more um, prosperous past, right? So if that actually gains traction in a way, or at least provides enough of an organizing principle that people can imagine what that political thing that the jihadis are offering and how it might in the future benefit them versus what they know now, that's important for us to know. And we can't just do counterterrorism operations and expect to eliminate that narrative, right? 
It's playing on a need. If it gains traction, it's playing on a need of the population. So part of what we have to do is if that resonates, if it sticks, figure out why, and then how do you take that underlying impulse and move it off in a more productive um, a productive way. Now, that's not something conventional forces will be able to do very well, right? It requires uh, more regional sensitivity. It requires more cultural um, appreciation. It requires working with um, interagency because the solution is not going to be only within special operations or special operations forces. It's going to require working with interagency partners. It's going to require working in many cases with corporations that operate in that area. It's going to require working with uh, international organizations and special operations forces are probably better postured for that kind of thing than say the conventional forces. So I would, I would offer that if we're sensitive to narratives, there is an immediate response in the, um, in the violent extremist organization response that we're probably missing because we're so focused on entrenching the government and the government's control over territory versus figuring out why is this narrative sticking in the first place. Yeah, and I think this this brings up a great point. And I, I'm just gonna echo what you're what you're saying, Dave, based on the the, the the workshop that we were taking part in, this idea of constructing versus deconstructing narratives and and how how difficult it is to construct a narrative uh, when compared to deconstructing a narrative. And it comes down to the facts on the ground that you had alluded to already. And so, you know, it, it, what you're describing in, in, in the Sahel is, is a great example of that, that challenge of, you know, why that narrative is sticking, because it, it, it's, it's backed up by facts on the ground. It's backed up by what's actually happening. And so any counter narrative we provide has to do the same thing. So we can't ignore right. those issues. We can't ignore those facts on the ground. Um, unless we're engaged in just simple deconstruction, then we don't care. But that doesn't have that stickiness that we're after. That doesn't affect real change. It simply, it simply as the name implies, it simply destroys, which I don't think is what we're after either. Um, right. And this ultimately goes back to the whole idea of resilience and resistance. Right. If, if we're sensitive to these narrative uh, components, we can start to analyze, OK, our adversary has identified a weakness within a society. It is propagating narratives to, as Christian said, deconstruct. Right. Doesn't all it needs to do is create chaos, weaken the national will. And that is the strategic effect of the narrative um, uh, and the movement behind it. Uh, or we could say, if that's the case, how do I make my uh, partner more resilient by leveraging, and, and deconstruction is usually most powerful along those primary socialization lines. I'd like to just jump in here because you both have said something that I find interesting. You've used examples from the counter violent extremist organization campaigns. Um, I was involved in a counter ISIS campaign. And one of the allies said they have a very strong narrative. And he said the allied US narrative is, I quote, weak soup. But it leads to the question, and I'm, I'm choosing the words very carefully, would be interested to hear your opinion, Dave. Do we seek to develop counter narratives or alternate narratives? Would be, I, would be curious for your, your views to that. My personal assessment is counter is counterproductive. <laughs> so I, I, because um, there's, so the short answer is we need to shape. There always has to be the something alternative building towards something more positive. 
a counter mentality is inherently about stability and stasis. We're trying to keep what we have versus recognize the environment is always moving and shaping and changing around us. Therefore, how societies um, adapt to that reality needs to be fluid as well. So we've come up with this idea following the fall of the Soviet Union of stability. I think that is one of the single most damaging concepts in our lexicon because it is about protecting what we have and it does not reflect the fact that every society, no matter what, will always adapt to a changing world. And in the 21st century, the rate of change is accelerating. So the more we try to keep things stable and the way they are, the more we're going to lose to the circumstances around us. Ironically, this is a strategic benefit for the West because democracies, as messy as they are, are pretty resilient to change because they can adapt and ebb and flow with what those changes are. Authoritarian systems tend to ossify much more over time relative to the rate of change. And that's why they collapse because they can't in the end deal with the contradictions of the way the system was designed versus how much the environment has changed around it. That so, is fascinating. Okay, so sorry, I, I, I got some connections being made here that are, are pretty pretty rapid, but I'm thinking like this, this is, you're talking about leveraging our inherent strengths to achieve what we want to achieve. And what you're, what you're saying, if I get you right, is, is a lot of what we're doing is going right against what we're really good at naturally. And I sort of yeah. think of like martial arts, like whether it's Aikido or Jiu-Jitsu, where, you know, you're not supposed to go you know, head to head and, 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 and strike at a strength. You, you use the person's own energy as they're coming at you and redirect it into something that you want, right? So if someone's attacking you, you just gently nudge them in the direction they're already moving and then they fall over and, and, and you've won the bout. It's the same sort of thing. It seems to me you're saying like a counter narrative. And I love that distinction between counter versus alternative narrative. So, so you know, Kevin, great question to, to sort of disentangle that because I see it now that, you know, counter is, is the stability. That's where we're going against what we're good at naturally. Whereas if we shape, we, we, we empower the part of our society that is naturally malleable and dynamic and by, their, by definition, then therefore resilient, it'll be far easier. And that distinction of alternative is about shaping versus counter is about stability. I really like that. That's really, really interesting. I want to I highlight that as, as sort of a key kind of deduction from this conversation. I think it's really important. The challenge is it's almost impossible for a non-native to kind of figure out what that alternative is. So you can't plan in country, right, at, uh, at home to go out and deploy and do something that is necessarily going to be meaningful to that population. There has to be this idea of what we use in design thinking called co-creation, right? We may have some ideas, we may be able to do some analysis, but then getting the ground reality of what looks like better for this population. That's the harder thing to do. And I think this is where special operations as, a, um, as conceived as being regionally aligned or culturally attuned have a much better chance of figuring it out from our military interests than say conventional forces, um, whether it's in strategic competition or counter-violent extremism. Um, but it, it's not special operations alone. It's going to have to be working with academia and journalists and non-governmental organizations. And right. So, and it's not necessarily us interacting with all of those, 
but having the connections and the, the habit of interaction with our interagency partners who do relate to those organizations and interact and you can get that, that sensing mechanism from a whole different range of vantage points. And just as an example on the Sahel, you know, just an environmental factor that is helping or, or impacting the Fulani, right? So a lot of them are nomadic pastoralists. They, they spend some time in an area and they'll move some part of their herds across territory. Well, um, expanding dust, uh, urban zones and farmland, which is necessary for feeding populations, have impacted their grazing areas historically. So now you're getting into many more um, uh, farmer versus pastoralist conflicts for which there might not be good conflict resolution mechanisms. Enter in the jihadis, providing support to those pastoralists who may not have the right representation in one of any of the countries. And so this is why a Fulani narrative of the empire of Messina might, for example, be relevant. I, I don't know that this is one of the things we're exploring, but we're not going to figure out a plan in the United States with a development agency and say, go fix that, right? That's going to require the co-creation. And then what's the narrative that helps make that activity more relevant to the population than what the jihadis can offer? It's almost like we have to become opportunistic. You know, we have to go into a theater of operations with an open mind and look at, you know, what is it that we can do? to achieve our objectives with, you know, the most efficient way, the optimized way. Because another example that really jumps to mind for me is the, the, this, the, what you're provi providing beautifully explains why the Anbar awakening in Iraq was not replicable in Afghanistan. Despite efforts to do it, it because the facts on the ground weren't the same. The condition, the same opportunity wasn't there. And so we need the opportunity, well, in a different way. So I work village stability operations. Okay, gotcha. But you're right, the Anbar awakening model wasn't going to work in, in Afghanistan because you have entirely different political cultures. You have a country that was below subsistence for decades, whereas Iraq was not. It had its issues, but there was a functioning bureaucracy, bad as it was, right? And, and so the, the, and the tribal mechanisms in Iraq were still actually pretty well formed versus in Afghanistan where they had been explicitly degraded by both Soviet and then ISIS, uh, excuse me, Taliban um, governance, right? So you could, but it was going to look very, very different. Right. So that leads me to uh, another, another question, Dave, if I may, which is, we talked a bit, I think, and I think we've covered most of it, but I just want to kind of articulate it explicitly. What are the drivers of a, of a narrative? Um, what makes a narrative more than just a story? So I think uh, broadly, um, maybe five things. The first is there has to be a collective identity that people can relate to. So whether it's tribal, religious, uh, or something like parent, right? <laughs> as long as there's an identity that can be um, explicitly identified as being relevant in the now, you can build a narrative for that thing. It's hard to use a narrative without it being relevant in the first place. Circumstances can change around the society where those things start to become relevant, but it's hard to just craft one out of whole cloth. Second, there needs to be a common stock of knowledge, right? The shared history or myths or um, cultural icons or symbols that people can draw upon 
to activate that identity, whatever it might be. Third, I think you have to have a means of mass communication and assembly. If, if people don't recognize others are thinking uh, in this way or within the frame of this identity, then they feel uh, atomized, they feel isolated, and it, they can't generate the social mass to, to create change. Fourth, um, you need that environmental condition that makes the identity relevant. So what are, what are factors that are happening either socially, um, economically, politically, that suddenly this identity layer has some gravity or, or some relevance in a way that it would be otherwise inert, right, as a political force. And then fifth, uh, what are the actions on the ground that transform words into physical reality? And so um, I study atrocity. How do you get to a point where drilling into people actually becomes a rational behavior, for example, in, in Iraq? What I found generally is that um, you, atrocity is, is not something where you have ancient hatreds that suddenly people decide, I'm gonna, I hate my neighbor, I'm gonna go and, and commit some kind of nasty act on them. It's pretty always, pretty much always a bureaucracy. There is some group that says, I need to create the reality of this conflict and I'm going to go and do things that suddenly make a particular identity framing meaningful. So one of the hidden um, elements of Iraq, say, in 2003, 2004, 2005, was there was a pretty, yes, the Sunni Shia schism was a thing based on Saddam's politics after 1991 or late 80s or um, early 90s. But there was such an integrated nationalist identity in a way, plus intermarriages between Sunnis and Shias, there was actually a pretty tight resistance, or frankly, what we might call resilience to extremism based on Sunni Shia grounds. So when I was researching um, uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, they couldn't get traction. And you see Zarqawi actually saying this, the Sunnis aren't rising up, they're asleep. We have to make the identity relevant and we will then be protectors. So what did they do? They started the atrocity, kidnapping random people, torturing them, throwing their bodies out, getting police uniforms to make it real, and then ultimately um, blowing up the, the Great Mosque in Samarra, right? That was a bureaucracy that made the logic of appropriateness of Sunni-Shia conflict palpable, if that makes sense. And you see this in a lot of different places with ethnic chauvinists or ethnic uh, entrepreneurs is sometimes what they're called. They have to create the facts on the ground in order to get people to even think in these terms and activate the logic of appropriateness of that otherwise inert identity. So Dave, I think you've made an extremely good case for the significance of narrative, not only in the counter violent extremist organization campaigns of the past, but also for great power competition that we currently and in the future face. You also had at the very beginning, I found an interesting reconceptualization of special operations not necessarily being led by special operations forces. But we come back to that starting point that I, I kind of started in the beginning. You and I both work for US Special Operations Command. Canada has their Canadian Special Operations Command. 
all of our allies have a similar command with forces and institutions. What do those institutions need to do in order to address this extremely important concept of narrative and what I would call the cognitive battlefield in great power competition? Uh, <clears throat> part of this goes back to a conversation of what we mean with uh, statecraft, but let me, and we'll come back to that, I guess, in a moment, but let me uh, answer your question directly. Two things seem to me to be immediately relevant in order to start to play in this area. Number one is um, we have to recognize that this is an extremely hard thing to do. <laughs> so yeah, I think you need to assess and select for individuals who have a propensity to want to play in sociology, anthropology, history, political science. It's just a natural uh, affinity for those kinds of culturally oriented, sociologically, sociologically oriented concepts. They're not hard. Um, they can be explained to everybody, but it takes someone who really enjoys this to go deep into it. Um, and, and the institutions need to recognize that it's just a different skill set uh, or, or um, preference, personality preference, uh, rather than some of the other uh, military occupational specialties. It's not just, I can make you a psy offer or I can make you a civil affairs. It's, I have to know why you are good at this and are able to see things. Um, and that requires some institutional reflex, re, reflect, reflexivity of the institutions to, to ask, are we doing this? Are we postured to create those forces? Do we amend what we're doing or do we need to create something brand new that brings this kind of perspective in from the start? Another component is a really hard one, which is to say it's not about the operator or the operation. It's about the narrative. And all the physical activities have to nest and make relevant that narrative. That's the harder one because culturally we put it at the second or third layer of, hey, go tell them what we did was pretty good. It's not, it doesn't work that way. And so when I was working village stability operations, one of the um, things we tried to incorporate was a strategic agriculture initiative. I worked in Soda South. Uh, Special Operations Task Force South and, and with some um, folks in Southeast. And what I assessed from back home uh, was that uh, these are, whether they're a, a Alakazai or a Popplezai, pretty much everyone we were going to be dealing with was a below subsistence farmer, a rain-fed below subsistence farmer that did not know how to preserve their own food with no supply chain. So how do you make what we're doing relevant, goodness gracious, that there was so much we could do at a very low cost that the Taliban could never provide to get them up to a level of above subsistence agriculture, feeding their families and breaking the, um, the uh, debt dependency on poppy, right? There are things we could do. But it was the idea of making the farmer identity the most important thing, not the tribal identity. So we made the strategic communications of the district governor around the farmer. So our, our military information support operations were are built around farming and creating this collective identity and doing activities of 
district farm presentations and so on and so forth that were designed to um, make the Afghan military, which before they were in the military, what were they doing? They're farming, right? <laughs> well, you know, they were bringing this together uh, in a holistic way. And what's great about it, for example, in this one is farming is inherently predictable. Inherently predictable. You can pre-plan every step of your engagement over time because it's all predictable. And But the operations were designed to support um, that engagement. So we had uh, shaping operations around to clear space where our Green Berets and USDA, right, Department of Agriculture Extension agents were part of this. So helping guide what we were doing so that we were doing the right things with that population. So uh, that's just one example of where farming became a special operation from a narrative perspective. Conventional forces really can't do that. All right, Dave, uh, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. Um, I think certainly, I think, I think it would, you've caused, you've provoked a lot of thought, that's for sure. Uh, you know, whether it's from recasting what we ask of soft to recasting um, how we go about doing it to in fact, recasting what it is we're trying to achieve just at a, at a national or even a coalition level. Um, Can I, I add um, yeah, one sure. more thing, Kristen? Yeah. So there was a second component to uh, the answer, Kevin, and that is working um, with this whole idea of the joint interagency intergovernmental, multilateral, and, and civilian sectors, right? In the U.S. military, we call that GIMC, but it's beyond joint. It's recognizing that in order to shape the environment and to actually generate viable narratives and, and behavior change as a result, it has to be inherently at a minimum interagency. But more than anything, it's going to be partners figuring out where they fit in, um, in some cases, the United States is not trusted. We shouldn't be the lead, but maybe one of our partners or allies is trusted and or don't have historical baggage, and they can. And so they may need some support in order to be the, the, the front um, out there on the front lines. But it has to be across all of those sectors. This is not something where special operations are going to be able to handle this in a silo. And this is where the difference between a special operation as potentially an inherently Jim C thing is different than special operation forces going out and conducting a special operation. So while the institution needs to assess and select and create the structures that make narrative relevant, part of it is also cultural and somewhat structural on how do we create the interaction platform on a regular basis so that we can co-create and digest their information, right, um, with the local population, but also with our GMC partners. That is probably one of the harder things for us to do, but I think essential if we're going to get this right. Yeah, again, Dave, thank you so much. You've been super generous with your time. Uh, Kevin, anything you want to close with? Dave, I think you've highlighted a number of uh, significant themes for us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, not fully converted, but you've given me some things to think about. Um, I think where we do agree very strongly is it's this, this broader GMC joint interagency world. And it goes back to something that we've talked about earlier in the series, special operations forces not conducting the operations, but being the integrator to bring all these various elements, the convening 
convening a task force, convening a working group, convening a, an ad hoc uh, crisis group to address narrative. There, I think there's a lot of possibility, but it will require culture change and perhaps organizational and incentive changes. So you, you've touched on a lot of important topics today and really, we, really, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. All right, have a great day, Dave, take care.